Okay, this is philosophy in a weekend. So what we're doing is we're galloping through the different types of philosophy. And um, what we're going to do in this session is uh, moral and political philosophy. Um, and we're going to spend half an hour on moral, uh, political philosophy and half an hour, I think, on moral philosophy. So, yes, there you are. That's what I've said anyway. Um, okay, here's a, a chap called uh, Robert Nozick. Uh, he died in 2002, so when I say fairly recently, it was rather more recently than Descartes did. Um, he um, gave a very famous thought experiment called the Wilt-Chamberlain experiment. And just to say something small about thought experiments, um, I've said that logic is the methodology of philosophy. Um, a scientist will go into the laboratory and under the constraints of the laws of nature, he'll design and run experiments to tell him about how the world works. So he'll use the method of differences and other differences. He'll try and find out whether A causes B. And if uh, an A occurs without a B, he'll know that there's something wrong with A causes B. He'll, he needs to um, check. And it's exactly the same with the thought experiment. Instead of being constrained by the laws of physics, we're constrained by the laws of logic. And what we do is we take two concepts and we try and pull them apart in the same way that we'll try and pull apart A and B in a, in a physical experiment <coughs> to see whether we can separate A and B. And that's basically what a thought experiment is. And the Wilt Chamberlain thought experiment um, is pulling apart the notions of equality and freedom. And what the Wilt Chamberlain experiment shows is that there is a a tension between freedom and equality that won't go away whatever we do. So let's have a, let's have a look at this. Okay, so um, and then in moral philosophy we're going to compare and contrast two popular accounts of what makes actions right and wrong. Um, so we're going to look at utilitarianism and deontology which are two moral theories um, if you like. Okay, so we'll start by, by looking at political philosophy and we'll start by looking at Nozick. So, the problem of distributed justice, that's what we're going to be looking at. Uh, and it's a key problem because what it looks at is how the state distributes goods amongst its citizens. Um, so, we can think of all sorts of different, I mean, here we've got two pieces of pie. I, I hope you've seen why I've illustrated it by that. You probably, with your children, you get one child to cut it and the other child to, to decide. And that way, the, the child who cuts it has got a very good reason for making sure that they're absolutely equal and so on. So equality, maybe, is one principle of distributive justice. So when the state is considering how to distribute burdens and benefits amongst its citizens in as fair a way as possible, um, what it's looking at is the theory of distributive justice. Okay, any questions about that? Okay, so the benefits that uh, a state might be 
thinking of distributing would include for food, water, land, education, votes, freedom. I mean, it can include a benefit of any kind. It needn't be a tangible benefit like food. There are some things like air, of course, which, which actually we don't think of distributing um, because there's enough of it to go around however much that people want. Um, you could imagine that distributive justice would become quite important if that stopped being true. Um, and burdens include work, taxation, community service, that sort of thing. So how do we make sure that these are distributed over the population in such a way that, on the whole, people will accept it's fair? I mean, it's hardly ever the case that people will accept it's completely fair, that everyone will accept that it's completely fair. But what you want is to stop people rioting. I mean, you, you don't want the poll tax riots because people perceive something as being unfair. Because um, we know that children come out of the womb yelling it's not fair. I mean, fairness is, is something that um, is, is very deeply embedded in our psyche. Okay, uh, it's easy to imagine distributions that we would consider unfair. So men get all the benefits, women get all the burdens. <laughs> Bill thinks that's okay, but I don't. <laughs> And blue-eyed people get all the benefits, brown-eyed people all the burdens, um, healthy people get the benefits. You can, I mean, if any state tried to distribute things by these criteria, they would soon have, a, well, they'd have to spend a lot of effort in cowing the, the people in the population that they were um, giving the burdens to. Um, but it's very much less easy to come up with sensible distributions that would be considered fair by everyone. So Robert Nozick, in this book, a very famous book, Anarchy, State and Utopia, um, suggests that there are two different types of theory, um, theories of distributive justice, and that one type is not fair. And the reason this is important is because the type of theory that he thinks and that he argues is unfair is very much the sort of theory that, that on the whole, we think is fair. Um, so, for example, um, oh, sorry, yes, he identifies two types of theory, a pattern theory, which is how a theory is. So if we take a snapshot of distribution uh, and it fits a certain pattern, then we think it's fair. That would be a pattern theory. And an historical theory, we look at the history of how this pattern comes about. Um, and it's the pattern theory of justice that states the distribution um, is just only if it satisfies a certain pattern. So here are, these are pattern theories, egalitarianism. If this is the society and I'm the state distributing things, so if I can say, okay, everyone in this room gets a, an equal, absolutely equal share of the money that I've got to distribute, that would be one way of um, obeying the commands of distributive justice. And you can see that that's not an historical theory, is it? Um, we just take a snapshot of your holding at any one time, and as long as everyone has equal shares, then it's correct. So it fits a pattern. Okay? Uh, and the same thing, utility maximization. Um, what that means is we might say that the right distribution, the distribution that's just, is the one that leads people, uh, leads you to think that it's the greatest happiness of the greatest number is being satisfied. So 
can anyone think of an objection to um, egalitarianism, for example? If I do, if I'm the state and you're the subjects and I give everyone equal holdings, can you think of why that might not be fair? Because some people may start off with having a hell of a lot and some people might start off with having very little. Um, you, could, you could look at it that way. I mean, perhaps if we're starting off from every, everyone starts with nothing and I give you equal shares, that, that wouldn't hold at that point. But you have to distribute the results so thinly that it can have no effect. Uh, it might be that I have so little money that distribute it, you know, you all end up getting a penny and none of you can, can live on a penny. That would be one objection. You might want to do it according to need as well. Something. Well, no, we're, ta we're talking about egalitarianism at the moment. Um, need would be a different... But actually, that may be an objection. OK. OK, can you spell it out as an objection to egalitarianism? Well, it's not reasonable that everyone... Not everyone needs the same amount of resources of a particular kind, and therefore... So why might somebody need less than somebody else? Why? Um, oh, because of their... Um, size, because of their place in their living, um, because of their job, or something like that. So yeah. There are all sorts of reasons why somebody ought to have more or more Okay. So, so you're very ill, um, and in order to live reasonably successfully, you need carers coming in, you need a wheelchair, you need this, that, and the other, and you're perfectly fit and healthy, you need none of these things. Is it fair that I give the two of you the same amount of money? Well, surely it's not, because you need so much more um, to, ha to flourish than you do. Um, and therefore, egalitarian looks like the wrong theory. Um, and utility maximisation might be a better theory here. We distribute according to the greatest happiness to the greatest number. Um, but can anyone think of a problem with that? why that might not be the right way to do it. Well, you may have a few people who are very, very unhappy and they're going to start <laughs> fighting. Yes. I mean, look at this person here. She's obviously a very happy person. I, I mean, actually, if I give her all the money, I can make happiness it just flow out of her. Uh, whereas this miserable person here, you know, if I give her money, it's just a complete waste of time. Um, well, and that, <laughs> that's another question. It's certainly not having money doesn't make you happy or makes you unhappy. Um, but you can see that, that in each case there's a, there's a reason for thinking that this is a good patterns theory of distributive justice. But when you think a little bit harder, you know, you can see problems with it. Um, Maxim Min, does anyone know what Maxim Min is? No, okay, there's no reason why you should. Um, there's another philosopher called John Rawls, very important philosopher, writing at the same sort of time as Nozick, um, who wrote a book called The Theory of Justice, which is a brilliant book and, and is, was, became a very influential book. Desperately boring. <laughs> um, at times, yeah. I mean, you, you, have, you have to read it for content. Not, um, it's quite a long book. Um, but he had an interesting thought experiment. In fact, let me give you his thought experiment. He believed that you could determine the principle of justice um, by looking at people in a condition he called the original position. So um, he, the original position is a position where everyone's behind the veil of perception. 
Um, and this isn't the veil of perception that Descartes talked about. It's a slightly different one. So everyone has um, the thin theory of good. Um, so the veil, is that how you spell veil? Of perception. You have the thin theory of good. Um, which tells you that um, with human beings, uh, it's women who have children, okay, not men. Um, and that, women, that human beings need a certain amount of warmth, food, etc., etc., to, to flourish. Um, so the thin theory of good will, will cover things like physical things, cover things like psychological things, cover things like political things. But what you don't know is who you are. So if you're in the original position, you don't know whether you're male or female, you don't know whether you're old or young, you don't know whether you're clever or stupid, you don't know whether you're educated or uneducated, um, you don't know whether you're healthy or <coughs> unhealthy, you know nothing about yourself. Um, that's why you're behind the veil of perception. But you've, you've got this thin theory of good, you, you know basically. And from this position, you've got to choose the principles of justice. Okay, so are you going to choose egalitarianism? Well, you might, but you might think, well, hang on a second, what if I'm in a wheelchair, not very well, need carers, etc.? Maybe egalitarianism, the... Uh, and you might think, well, okay, should I choose utility maximisation? Well, one of the problems with that is... Um, as we're, well, actually, no, I'm going to leave that. Let's forget utility maximisation because we're going to talk about it later on and I'll, I'll refer back then to what I'm intending here. And what um, Rawls thinks is that when you're in the uh, original position, what you'll choose according is maximin. You'll maximise the minimum position. You'll think to yourself... I might need a carer, I might be in a wheelchair, I might be thick, I might be uneducated, I might be this, that and the other. And just in case I am, I'm going to make sure that the minimum position gets maximum holdings. Do you, what do people think of that? Is maximin a, a good strategy? Um, it seems to me that it's like a variation on rules. You do actually know where you can be in that society and it's going to be at the bottom. Well, you're postulating the possibility of being at the bottom mm -hmm. um, in order to make your yeah. dis decision. So, so that you will make your effort to make the bottom as high as you can. So you'll, you'll try and make the bottom as high as you can, exactly. And then if you find that you're at the top, you know, you might think, God, I shouldn't have done that, should I? Um, or you might think, I'm very glad I did that. I, I want these people to have... But it seems to me it's a variation on rules. Uh, no, it's not... A, very, um, Rawls has the original position. He thinks that those in the original position will choose according to Maximin. Okay, so he ends up with the Maximin. Oh. Maximin is, is the decision procedure by which you choose the principles of justice. And it continues to, that you have no idea where you're going to end up, but you're, you're saying, just in case I end up in the minimum position, I'm going to choose the maximum holdings for the minimum position. Uh, it depends a great deal on whether you're a betting person, exactly so. Um, 
Yes, because if you're a betting person, you're, you're probably good. But actually, Rawls has an answer to that. Does anyone know what his answer might be? Well, OK, so, so Bill said um, you wouldn't choose according to Maxim in if you were a betting sort of person. Because you'd immediately think, well, you know, I'm going to be a you know, rich, educated, intelligent so I'm not going to maxim, maximise the minimum position. Instead, I'm going to... Um, you bet both ways? Can you hedge your bets? No. <laughs> um, well, Rawls thinks not. Why, why does he think you're not going to uh, be a betting person in the position of the original position? Does any, can anyone think of a reason why you wouldn't? He thinks it would be completely irrational to be a betting person in that situation because you're not betting on a particular thing in your life, you're betting on the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and, and he thinks that we'd be risk averse. Actually, he rather writes this in by saying that the people in the, in the original position would be risk averse. Mm -hmm. And you might think, well, actually, it's not obvious that they would be, not all of them. It's, it's, there's a maximum strategy within game, game theory. Sounds yes. very similar. Yes, and it probably is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so so can you see that all of these are patterned theories of justice? So you look at a snapshot and you think if everyone's got equal holdings, that's fine. If you, you look at a snapshot and you think this distribution leaves everyone with, with the greatest happiness, the greatest number, that's fine. This position maximizes the minimum position and that's fine. They're all patterns positions. Um, patterns theories of justice um, and we need a snapshot to show that um, a, a distribution meets this pattern. Okay now note it claims that no patterns theory of justice is just um, and his argument for this is that they necessarily involve interference with individual freedom. Um, so uh, let's have a look at the argument. It's a thought experiment, and it's the Wilt-Chamberlain thought experiment. Wilt was a real person. That's him, in fact. He's a basketball player. Um, six foot seven, apparently. Um, so you've got to start by imagining a situation, D1, distribution 1, uh, in which all the holdings in society are justly distributed according to your favourite pattern theory of justice. So... Let it, it doesn't matter what it is, but if, you, if you've got a favourite patterned theory of justice, that's what the holding is in D1. Okay? Are you happy with that? Um, and the experiment continues by asking us to imagine Wilt Chamberlain, who's famous and hugely popular, as indeed he was, um, and he insists he's only going to play if 25 cents from the price of each ticket of admission goes to him uh, in addition to his salary. OK, so there's a little box marked Wilt. Um, and as you come in, you put 25 cents in that box as well as you're having paid the ticket price. Otherwise, he's not going to play. And you wouldn't even go, frankly, if he wasn't going to play because you're only going really to see Wilt. The other people are just <laughs> waste of spaces on the... Uh. So... Um, after one season, one million people come to see Wilt play and they're all very happy to drop 25 cents into a special box with Wilt's name on it. I couldn't find a box with Wilt's name on it, so you've got a piggy bank instead. Um, and at the end of the situation, we've got a new distribution, D2, 
distribution 2, D2, in which the holdings in society don't meet the pattern that you originally chose. And that's because Wilt has got £250,000 that nobody, or dollars that nobody else has. Okay? Can you see how that happens? Um, D2 came about by just moves from a just starting point. So you started the starting point yourself. You, you chose the starting point. It's your favourite theory of justice. And D2 came about because Wilt chose under what conditions he would exercise his talents. You know, so we could force him to exercise his talents, you know, whether he liked to or not. Um, but that those, uh, he decided that that's the only time he was going to play. And everyone else chose to give 25 cents to Will because they wanted to see him play. Okay, So um, if you're not going to interfere with that, and you're not going to interfere with that, then D2 has got to be a just position of distribution. And the only way we can return to whatever pattern you had is by interfering, either by making Wilt um, play when he doesn't want to or under conditions and he's not prepared to, or by interfering with the freedom of individuals to spend their holdings as they wish. So according to Nozick, the Wilt-Chamberlain argument shows us that liberty and equality are essentially intention in that you, to sustain equality, you've got to interfere with liberty. And to sustain liberty, you've got to interfere with equality. Um, he also shows that huge inequalities, he says, can be fair. Indeed, he says that taxation is forced labour. Um, so we could make Wilt play when he doesn't want to um, by taxing him, um, but that would be forced labour. Um, and according to Nozick, all patterns are disrupted by freedom. Um, and that's why no uh, patterns theory of justice can be just. So, okay, that's the Wilt-Chamberlain argument. What do you think about it? David, isn't it? Yes. Uh, it it uh, presupposes that everyone in the society isn't aiming for that same pattern, which is probably a fair assumption. But Why does this assume that? Well, because pe people can be free to choose as they want to choose. Oh, yes. It, it, it they choose yeah. to follow that pattern. They might do, but, but if, as long as you leave them free to choose to give Wilt the money, and as long as you leave Wilt free to choose to play or not, this uh, unpatterned distribution will come about, will come about. I mean, you could stop people giving the 25 cents to Wilt. Um, or it might be that nobody wants to give Wilt 25 cents, I mean, which is what you're thinking about. Uh, yeah, so if, if, if Wilt decided it would be unjust of him to ask for 25 cents, and people that would be unjust of them, I refuse to pay 25 cents. Yes, totally you could imagine a society in which people did refuse to pay 25 cents to Wilt to see him play, but it's not our society, is it? No, it's probably not, never going to happen. No, and you could imagine a society in which Wilt says, I am going to play for nothing, you know, just because people want me to, you know, and that's not our society either. Um, 
So yes, you, you could imagine that, but what you're imagining is not a real situation. But it, I mean, it's, it doesn't, it's not necessarily black and white. I mean, you could, ha you could aim for a pattern society, but not... And how would you have to aim for a pattern society? Okay, that, that's a, an interesting thought. Anyone else have any... Is anyone putting their hands up at the back that I can't see? No, not at the moment. Go on. By allowing the variation, but assuming a base minimum provision. Uh, okay, if you're going to assume a base minimum position, so you will interfere with Wilt's freedom or with <coughs> the freedom of the other people, um, to ensure that everybody that there is a, at least the pattern of everyone having a minimum position. So you're going slightly for maximum. <coughs> Yeah, okay. Other people think the same way? Yeah, it's, it's gone. I'm a bit puzzled about why this extra 25 cents makes it very different from him getting his wages anyway and people choosing to go and pay without the 25 cents. Well, everyone else on the base, I, I think there's more than one person on a basketball team, isn't there? Um, yeah. Um, I'm sure there is, but but they get the same. He and Wilt, they and Wilt all get the same salary. He oh. insists on getting 25. Uh, um, I always assume that different players get different amounts, but that shows what I know about sport. Well, I don't know much more about sport than you do, but he's insisting on 25 cents extra in a box for him. Yeah. Come on, come on. Could you just argue? Well, that's just how it is. And everybody's <laughs> different, and, and you just have to accept that, that equality doesn't exist on any. On any well, basically, that, that. that's what he is arguing. He, he's arguing that um, the downside of ever trying to produce equality is by that you and therefore, he thinks that actually you just have to say this is the way it is. Mm. Um, and you would push it so far until you had people out on the streets waving banners and rioting and, and whatever. And then, oh, we've got to pull back a bit. OK, well, that, that's what we need to work out here, because actually, Nozick is an anarchist um, in the proper meaning of the term. It, it means that he thinks the state should be very, very small. He thinks the only justification for the state taking money from you that you have properly earned, um, fairly earned by your own labour, um, is to provide defence, um, a police force and an army and so on, to, to defend the population. Um, apart from that, there should be no other distribution of wealth at all. So actually, uh, there is a question of would people end up on the streets, etc. I mean, it, I mean wh how might you avoid this? I mean, one way would be the way you were going. Was it you or you? Um, okay, that's me. Okay, it's what taxation is for, isn't it? Yeah. And the whole point of taxation is that you take away from the people who've got a lot, you take away from the Wilt Chamberlains <coughs> of this world, and you um, use the money that you've raised through taxation to make sure that as few people as possible end up on the street. But what um, Nozick is pointing out is that actually 
in taxing people, you are making them work for nothing, basically, for nothing that they're getting for themselves anyway. They're, they're also they're paying their tax, they're getting the benefits of the taxation. Um, and that therefore, what is the extent to which you can take away in order to give other people something? I mean, this distribution, can it be, uh, I mean, for example, should I take tax away from you to send everybody to Eton? Do you see what I mean? I mean, we, we, in order to build the education system in a country, I've got to take, uh, assuming it's going to be free, then I've got to tax everybody in order to produce this education system. And something comes, I mean, wh what exactly, what sort of education system am I justified in producing from your hard-earned money that I'm taking from you? I mean, if I start taking too much from you, you, you are going to say, I'm not going to work, aren't you? Like Wilt is going to say, I mean, Nozick has absolutely got the moral dilemma that comes from the fact that you've got to keep in balance freedom and equality. If you go too far in one way, if you, go, if you give people too much freedom, you get people who end up on the streets. If you get too much equality, you get people starting to say, well, um, what's the point of my working? You know, I, you take it all in taxes. There's not much point in that. I think one of the things is that once you make the initial move, this isn't a binary, this isn't a binary di dilemma. What, what happens is that make the initial move, someone suffers or is disproportionately taxed. Therefore, you try and make compensating uh, moves or policies, and so you end up with a whole web of. Uh, Tax, taxation of different forms, direct, indirect, and for different groups. But, but and what the whole thing becomes uh, then the whole idea, if you like, of libertarianism or standing back becomes an impossible dream. Okay, but but we don't want to get. We're philosophers now, and we don't want to get to sure. that point. What we're doing is conducting a thought experiment, in, to enable to enable us to see that actually we value freedom, we value equality. Yeah. If you want one you've got to compromise the other yeah. and if you want one you've got to compromise the other well, you that very um, well no i haven't nozick has prevented presented it very clearly and you then do have the question of of how do you deal with this and do you go for toothbrush rights so everyone has the right to so you can tax people in order that everyone has their own toothbrush or do you tax people in order that everyone goes to eaton um, where, where do you place the taxation burden? How do you fit it in um, in such a way that you don't get riots in the street? Are you asking that in real terms? Or Sorry, I'm struggling whether it's a possible thought experiment. Uh, the thought experiment is just to show you that equality and freedom are essentially intention. Um, there's nothing any government, I mean, all that's left for any government or any opposition to do is to find a way of balancing them in such a way that the people aren't going to riot um, in effect. I mean, we, sometimes we get it wrong. I mean, the poll tax riots were exactly that, weren't they? I mean, what, what were we happening, what was happening there? Oh, are you all too young? <laughs> I mean, th think of the poll tax riots. What you had is people trying to take away um, in taxation more money than people were prepared to give, weren't they? 
Um, it was more fairness issue rather than it was an absolute. Yeah, it was tied to the vote, that was it. But everybody was the same, wasn't it? And that's yeah. why people were Yes, it was a progressive tax. Yes, you're quite right, actually. It's not a good example of what I'm looking for. Yes, I, I'm sorry, you're quite right. It wasn't a good example of what I was going for. OK, are you all happy then with what the Chamberlain argument is, is showing? And are you also happy with what the original position was showing? Um, that, that they're, I mean, what um, John Rawls is trying to say is that if you d just decide on the principles of justice from behind the veil of perception, it's got to be fair, he says. Um, but Nozick is going to say that's not fair. You're going to come up with a system that, that makes the, the minimum position maximised and actually that's just going to not happen because the minute you start allowing freedoms, that is going to be disrupted. I didn't quite understand um, why the people who are paying Wilt Chamberlain his wages... Well, no, his, his 25 cents, yeah. No, not the 25 cents. Oh. I meant he was getting the salary, I understood. But he wasn't going to come and play unless he got an extra 25 cents. Well, the people who are paying his wages, what were they paying his wages for if he could say, I'm not going to perform? Um. I mean, if he's not going to do what he's paid for, how can he do that? Well, I mean, he could have made them pay him an extra 250000 a year. I mean, he didn't do that. He made the ticket players do it. I mean, the thing, they presumably, it was worth it having them having Wilt playing for them because they got a million, million people through the barriers that wouldn't have otherwise come yes, but he would have I mean if you think of any he's taking a salary he would have had to play so the people would have seen him anyway well, you can't just suddenly say I'm going to have so much but what if he was saying I'm, I'm not going to go okay, but what if he was saying I'm sorry that's not enough money for me well that's different you're not asking the people to pay it you're saying to his club I want more money no but he's saying to the club I'm not going to play for that, I'm sorry, unless I get an extra 25% uh, cents. Well, then it wouldn't be the people, would it? I mean, it, it wouldn't well, where does it come from, then? But I don't quite understand why the man who wrote this and did this thought experiment. It seems a bit sort of a, a funny way of explaining something. Really. All, all he's trying to explain is that you can get from D1, which is your own choice of, of distribution, to D2 by just steps. Are you questioning whether these are just... Uh, why shouldn't Wilt just say, I'm not going to play unless people pay 25 cents and, and millions of people... I mean, goodness knows how many people would go to see... No, she I says, thinking, I don't know of any <laughs> name of any... <laughs> Wayne Rooney, thank you. <laughs> I don't think you can withdraw your labour from the people who if no, but you can refuse to sign the contract. But he just have to leave the club. But if he signed a contract, he will have to go and play. But he could refuse to sign the contract. Yeah. And then he doesn't <laughs> get the salary either. And then he doesn't get the salary, but that's all right. So he's, he he's, yeah, he doesn't want the salary. He's very rich from before. I, I think this may be a red herring. I, I'm not quite sure. Should we, should we move on to... Um, Let's move on to moral philosophy. We've gone slightly over. Okay, just a little bit forward. Lots of people ask me the difference between morality and ethics. 
uh, so I thought I'd say something. Uh, morality involves first order thinking about actions. So if you ask questions like abortion, is abortion right or wrong, or is it always wrong to tell a lie? Um, they count as morality. This, these are questions of the first order. Um, so we're thinking about particular types of actions like lyings or abortions or whatever and asking whether they're morally acceptable or unacceptable. Ethics involves second order thinking, which is thinking about first order thinking, thinking about morality. So if we ask, well, OK, you say abortion is right, first order thought, but what makes you say that any action is right? What is it for an action to be right? Do you see that we've done exactly what we did early on? We've, we've moved back one. So first we're looking at the world. We're asking about abortions. And, and now we've moved back one. And we're saying, well, what is it for abortion is right to be true? Um, do you see that on the whole, philosophers do that. They move back one. Uh, and they're looking at truth. Um, right, wrong, etc. So what is it for an action to be right? Do moral values really exist? Uh, I mean, that's called ethics. Uh, it's also sometimes called meta-ethics. I, I don't think it really matters whether you use ethics and morality interchangeably. Lots of people do, and I, I think that's perfectly reasonable. But that is the distinction between the two. So in, if we're talking about ethics, we're asking um, about moral judgments in general and how we justify them. So, okay, we're going to compare and contrast two ethical theories. And the first one we're going to look at is called deontology. And the second one that we're going to look at is called utilitarianism. Um, so Immanuel Kant, there he is, is probably the most famous deontologist. And deontologists believe that moral rules are absolute. Um, now, it, it almost hurts me to write that because there are so many different ways of understanding that sentence um, and I'm not going to explain any of them. Um, I'm, I'm happy in the question session perhaps to, uh, to explain more about them, but I'm just going to say, okay, a deontologist believes that moral values, are, moral rules are absolute, i.e. they hold everywhere for everyone at every time. So if don't lie is a moral absolute then it means that any lie is wrong. Okay? Um, so the right action for a deontologist is the one that accords with the rules. Um, okay, any questions about deontology, what deontology is? The etymology? Sorry? What's the etymology? Yes. Uh, deon from God from rules. Um, is that what you were going to ask as well? I was wondering whether you were going to get on to how the rules were arrived at. Uh, I'm not, because I'm... D uh, and again, we can answer that, we can look at that in the question session. Um, because that, that's a, an important question, isn't it, for deontologists? Where do the rules come from? Um, if you believe that there are moral rules that are absolute. Um, okay, so, so all you have to understand at the moment is that that's what a deontologist is, somebody who believes that moral rules are absolute. And John Stuart Mill is probably the most famous utilitarian. He wasn't the first, um, but he probably is the most famous. Jeremy Bentham was another one. Um, and a utilitarian believes that the right action is the action that produces the greatest happiness of the greatest number. Okay. So um, 
if you look at an action, you're not asking, is it, does it accord with a rule? You're asking, does it produce the greatest happiness to the greatest number? That's what a utilitarian is. You can see that these are two quite different moral theories um, because they have very different accounts of what it is for an action to be right or what it is for an action to be wrong. Any questions about utilitarianism? And it hurts me almost as much to, to... There are so many things yet to be asked about utilitarianism. But, but we're just going to leave it at that very simple definition at this point. We can look at some complications later on. Um, OK, so let's look at an argument for utilitarianism. Some of you will see the picture and know what I'm going to talk about. Um, OK, a ship is way out to sea, several days from the nearest land, and a fire breaks out in the engine room. Um, if the fire takes hold, hundreds of sailors are going to die. Um, but the captain knows that if he shuts off the oxygen in the engine room, the four sailors in the engine room will die, but, but the rest of the ship <coughs> will be saved. Okay, who thinks the captain ought to shut off the oxygen in the engine room? Stick your hand up. Right up so I can see you. Okay, most of you, but not all. Okay, who thinks he shouldn't? Okay, you really think that he... Why not? Well, there might be a chance that the surviving sailors might not die. They might cling to the ship and be rescued. Um, okay, so, so you think the, the captain should rely on that idea of luck? Yes. Okay, rather than kill the four. Okay, what were you going to say? It's, well, I think I'm being a bit contrary. I'm not sure I really believe this, but I don't think it's luck. I think it's about um, not being able to predict. Okay, I mean, it's certainly true that if he shuts off the engine in the... Uh, sorry, the oxygen in the engine room, the four sailors will die, um, well, we let's say, yes, uh, as part of the thought experiment. Whereas um, the other sailors might not die, then the fire might take hold, it might sputter out. <coughs> Um, or the, um, you know, the other sailors might cling to the edge of the ship and, and <coughs> save themselves or whatever. Or there might be another ship just over the horizon that'll come... OK, who else? Well, I, I was a bit worried about the direct action that the you know, captain will be taking. He will be quite wickedly and consciously killing, killing. four people. Yep. So there'll be an act of, of, of murder there. Whereas if he didn't do anything about it... it wouldn't he be wouldn't be guilty of killing anyone. Quite. OK, so you think that the captain ought yeah, to yeah. absolve himself of the guilt of killing anyone, even if it leads to the deaths of hundreds of people? I think that's the instinctive way I would, I guess. You would go? Yes. OK. And did, I'm only looking at the people who, who argued that the captain shouldn't turn <laughs> off the oxygen. Uh, uh, well, I'll tell you, let, let's have a couple of other reasons before we go on to your question. What, why? Is each of those lives equal to every other life? So a life is, for that single person, their life is as important as every other life of those hundreds of sailors. Okay, um, but, but I mean, why does that lead you to the idea he shouldn't turn off the oxygen in the engine room? So, so um, <coughs> the lives of the four sailors in the engine room are as important so to them... <coughs> it's not just a question of numbers. Yeah. yeah. So y you're actually thinking something similar to here. 
um, in that actually what you don't want to be guilty of is killing people, even if it leads to 100 people dying. Yep, okay. What, what was your same thing? Well, yes, yeah, similar. I thought it was morally reprehensible of the captain to, to actually shut the engine room off and kill some of his crew. That's not his job. <laughs> so it's fair. But his job is to save the hundred. Yes. <laughs> he, he must find another way. Yeah. Okay, so what, what do you think of that? I mean, it, somebody would say, and actually, I, I mean, there's quite a lot behind this, that his job is to save the ship and the hundred, uh, as many sailors as he could. And if he can only do that by killing the four, is that not a reason to kill the four? If he only That's written out of the yes, uh, that is, it is written out of the example. Uh, okay, um, okay. We, the vast majority of people think the captain should shut off the oxygen to the engine room. Is it reasonable to say that the reason you're thinking that he should do is because you're weighing the four lives against the hundreds of lives? Is, is that... Yes. Yeah? Okay, so everyone who said yes to this question, that the captain should shut off the oxygen to the engine room, is... is Sees an argument for utilitarianism. Mm -hmm. um, yes, but it's very fortunate that he's in a position of authority. If the captain wasn't there and died for some reason, I, I wouldn't be so happy about another passenger just stopping. <laughs> okay, but, but can we abstract away from that because we, we don't really. I, I think it, it probably is important that it's the captain doing that because, as you say, his duty is to save the ship. Um, so, yes, we can write that in if you like, but, um, yeah. Okay, so you, can you see an argument for utilitarianism, <laughs> even though not everyone accepts it? Some, some people reject it. Okay, fine. Um, if you think, so if you think, yes, the captain should turn off the oxygen to the engine room, then utilitarianism seems to give us the right answer. Okay. Um, now let's look at an argument from deontology. You don't know who this chap is, no. but you'll find out in a minute. <laughs> okay, a tramp is brought into hospital. He's a tramp. <laughs> uh, because he's had too much to drink. Um, he's got no friends or family. He's not at all happy with life. He's a miserable old sod. Um, but he is quite young and fit. Um, and the doctor treating him as four other patients, each of whom is about to die for want of a heart, lungs, kidney, liver, whatever... And each of these four parents is a, uh, patients is a parent, part of a loving family, embedded in a healthy friendship network, economically active, paying their taxes and so on. Um, if the doctor were to kill the tramp, having waited for him to sober up, because he wouldn't want alcohol in, still in the organs, would he, um, and harvest his organs, he could save the lives of the four other patients. Should the doctor kill the tramp? Yes. <laughs> That's not interesting. You said no. Okay, put your, put your hand up if you think that the doctor should kill the tramp. Nobody. Okay, okay put your hand up if you think the doctor shouldn't kill the tramp. Okay, put your hand up if you've not put your hand up. <laughs> Why not? I don't think life is as simple as that. 
<laughs> the thing about thought experiments is we have to get rid of all sorts of complications, so I, I sympathise with your thought, but uh, it isn't as simple as this, but we're making it as simple as this in order to test your intuitions on something. You do indeed. <laughs> well, we'll talk about free will later, if you like. Okay, do you, you had an answer there? No? Okay. Yes, I'd already voted. Oh, right, okay. Is this the same argument that I made before about the value of a life? Well, um, which is why you shouldn't be saying yes to this. I mean, as soon as I saw you saying yes, I was thinking no. I didn't say yes. Oh, you didn't? You did, but... I said yes. You, uh, I'm sorry, I was confusing you. It was just a joke. Ah, oh. <laughs> joke? You're absolutely right, I was confusing the two of you, I'm very sorry. To me, that's the same sort of You're absolutely right, it, it is exactly the same sort of argument in that, okay, Bill's saying no very volubly. I don't think it's the same Okay, I'll tell you what, you'll all have your say in a minute. Let's, let's just... Uh, okay, if you think no, then deontology here seems to give us the right answer, that it would be wrong to um, run over this tramp's right to life, um, to take his life, just as a means to the ends of the four other people um, there. And so it is exactly your argument here. You're saying that the tramp... His life is as valuable as the four other patients, even if they are economically active and all the other things I said, um, and he's not. Their life, uh, his life is to him just as important. And so it's exactly the same thing as, as with, the, um, with the sailors, exactly. The four, they have a right to life. Okay, we've got a problem though, haven't we, here? Because... Um, in the first case, utilitarian seemed the right thing to do, and the reason it seemed the right thing to do is you, you had more people alive and fewer people dead, and that seemed the right thing. Well, here, you've also got more people alive and fewer people dead. Well, how come the first one is acceptable and the second one isn't? What, why are your intuitions telling you that utilitarianism is the right answer in the first case, but the wrong answer in the second case. Do you see what, where, it's, where I'm coming from there? Because in the first example, it was either everyone was going to die or poor people were going to die. In this example, the tramp's not going to die. Um, okay, so you're killing the tramp in a, in a way... Um, when there was okay, I, can, I feel I ought to fiddle with the thought experiment to make that, make it the case. I could very easily make it so that... The four were going to die. Hang on, how would I have to do it? Um, the four people are going to die. The four people are going to die, yes, yeah, if the they don't... The choice was between four people dying or everyone dying. Here it's the choice between one person who isn't yeah. going to die actively being killed. Well, you're actively killing the people in the, the sailors no, in the engine room. they're going to die anyway because everyone's going to die. On oh, the I see. Yeah. Okay, how can we make the tramp die as well? <laughs> <laughs> Um, he, would, he would jump off a bridge the next day. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, because he's <laughs> yes, he's going to die anyway because he's so miserable. It's, uh, anyway, okay, okay. That we we do have a, a disanalogy there, um, but we can easily get rid of that disanalogy by fiddling with the thought experiment. We, 
And I hope you see that that's not a problem, fiddling with the thought experiment. What, what I can do is I can twiddle with your intuitions in all sorts of ways, so that in one case you'll come out with utilitarianism and the other case you won't. And when I tell you that um, the thing about utilitarianism, um, lots of people think that it's a very sound, I, I mean, it's very much a moral theory of our time, if you like, um, we tend to use qualies in the health service and things like that as a, a way of deciding which interventions are acceptable. But when I tell you that um, utilitarianism could in principle justify genocide um, on the following grounds, let's say that none of us like him, okay, he is just beyond the pale, isn't he? Um, <laughs> And we would be so much happier if he wasn't around, wouldn't we? <laughs> so, um, shouldn't we get rid of him? I mean, we would make the greatest number of the greatest... Sorry, the greatest of the greatest number happy by getting rid of him. Um, gen and how can you get over that other than by saying he has rights of some kind? And in the same way, utilitarianism can justify slavery. Because if you can tell a story by which enslaving people makes the greatest number of the greatest um, happy, sorry, I'm getting tied up in my words, makes more people happy than makes people sad, and it would be quite easy to tell a st story about slavery that way, wouldn't it? Um, then utilitarianism, again, will justify slavery. And to the extent that you think that slavery is always and everywhere wrong, um, to the extent that you think that genocide is always and everywhere wrong, you're pushed to the deontologist's side um, of the argument. So uh, there are actually the reason these two moral theories have survived so long is because each of them pulls out from us a very visceral intuition, doesn't it? Um, and what I've been trying to do in those two examples is, is, by, is to bring out each intuition. But there are other ways of doing it. Um, have you heard of trolleyology? I know some of you have. Um, so experiment one is there's a runaway train hurtling down the track to five workers, all of whom will be killed. Um, and you're watching from a bridge and you're next to a lever such that if you pull it, the train is going to divert onto another track. And on this track is one worker, and that worker is going to be killed if you pull the lever. Should you pull the lever or not? Now, you think not, presumably, and you think not, presumably, and the rest of you th should think yes. No, okay. Think no. you, okay, you think no. Because I'm not in a position of authority. Ah, okay, yes, you did, yes. Um, we could make you the train station master, but... Okay, should you pull the lever? I'll leave you to think about that. Experiment two, there's a runaway train hurtling down the track to five workers, all of whom will be killed, exactly the same as the last one. You're watching from a bridge, and on the bridge with you is a man fat enough... <laughs> So that if you push him off the bridge, he'll block the train. Um, and this would save the five, because the, the fat man would, would block the train. Um, but sadly, he would die. 
so you've, you've got the same thing again. One would die, five would be saved. Um, so should you push the fat man off the bridge? Who would push the fat man off the bridge? Oh, <laughs> three, three people. Why wouldn't you push the fat man off the bridge? If you, w if you would pull the lever, but you wouldn't push the fat man, why? What's the difference between the two? Because in the one case, it's a, it's a matter of uh, co-mission, the other is omission. In other words, you're not responsible for what's happening when the train's coming down. No, but you are responsible for pulling the lever yes. or pushing the fat man yes. off. That's, that's exactly my point. You, when it comes to the fat man, you have to actively do something that will kill somebody. Well, you see, if, you, if you're a deontologist, that's an easy one to answer. Well, you shouldn't push the fat man off. Absolutely. No. But pulling the lever um, also means that you are killing the one on the line, doesn't it? Well, somebody's going to die, yes. But you are, it's, it's like, you know, there's that other, if I could just bring in another example which I think helps you. Well, don't do, remember the. You're not a beginner, right? Okay. <laughs> okay. So I'm. I'm going to shut you up okay. right now. It's everyone else in this room, apart from him, is a beginner. Is, is there in some way? Uh, is it anything to do with the fact that um, uh, the immediacy of your action, mm. you know, pulling a lever, uh, it, you, you could be looking the other way, you'd be thinking of something else. You, you just yeah, and just lean on the just lever. Just lean on it, yeah. Whereas pushing the fat man is a very active and probably yeah. quite strenuous. Um, <laughs> and you're, you're making a, a decision and acting on it in a very forceful way. <coughs> okay. But it seems to me they're exactly the same <coughs> Go on. You mean the fat man and the, and the, uh, and the lever? Yes. <coughs> and, and what do you conclude from that? that? That the fat man should be pushed? Well, I'm not concluding anything from that. I'm saying they're the same problem. That's all I'm they, I, I've told the stories so that they'll be yes. the same problem, in that five are saved, one will die in each case. Um, some would think, though, they're not quite the same problem, because in the case of the lever, you're just pulling a lever. You're not actively killing someone. Um, and with the fat man, you are actively pushing him off. Um, I mean, who thinks that makes a difference? Put your hand up if you think that makes a difference. Is it is very, very similar to uh, lots of people being uh, in favour of the death penalty? Probably only a few people would be willing to do it themselves. Do it themselves. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, yes there's, there's quite a strong instinct not to be the person who's responsible for the death. And if, if you can do it by pulling a lever, that's acceptable. Of course, that's a bit worrying, isn't it? Um, so if, if I, if I, go on. It, yeah, it is worrying because it, one, it was, one appears to be direct, personal almost. One is a little bit withdrawn and, uh, and therefore you imagine that it's less, um, Invasive. Culpable. Culpable, but in fact, it's, I think that's a very it's a difficult road to go down in many ways. Um, well, you'll have heard of the Milgram experiment, yes. where Milgram asked people, um, they were told to obey orders, yes. um, and they had to um, deliver what they believed to be an electric shock, 
Um, again, the Cartesian thing comes in here because, of course, they weren't delivering an electric shock, but they thought they were, um, and they did. Um, I mean, 69% or something delivered the, the top shock, um, and that was probably because they, they, couldn't, they weren't doing it directly. Must have come into it. But let's, let's um, go on. One more, well, two more, and then we'll okay. move on. Uh, um, maybe you'll tell me this isn't a philosopher's way of thinking, so I'm prepared for that. But um, there's something here that about also that the immediacy, which the other gentleman mentioned, and almost sort of it's, an, it's a reaction to something that's happening now. But in fact, we don't know, do we? There's no way of knowing that the fat man on the bridge in 10 years' time might invent a cure for cancer which saves millions of people. In other words, something that appears right at a particular moment in time um, may, when looked at from a different perspective or in a different time or a different place, may not be. So well, that immediately black and white. whoever was talking about predictions was thinking of exactly that. Um, you can't predict what will happen and therefore you just shouldn't get involved. Well, that is a, um, another strand to this, I think. Yes. Yeah, but can you see it's exactly the same yes, as, as yes, the yes, idea yes, that you yes. can't predict whether the hundreds will die? Yes, and I think this um, is something which some people, when you hear lots of people say, over, over years I've heard many people say, we shouldn't stand in the place of God. And I think there's something that, that touches on what we've just talked about there. Okay, well, let's have a look at how these things work. Um, there's something, two distinctions that we've made there. Um, one was the um, act-omission distinction, yeah. and the other was something called double effect. Um, the act-omission, I can never remember whether it's got two M's or one. Um, the idea here, we all know, don't we, or we know of, the doctor who saunters to the room where somebody's having a heart attack. Uh, the person having a heart attack has got dementia, is very elderly, doesn't want to be resuscitated, um, but is having a heart attack, so the doctor finishes his tea and then goes quite slowly to the room and, oh, it's too late. You know, um, now, the doctor did not kill this man, okay, because he died of a heart attack. But what the doctor did do was omit to save his life. Okay, he could have saved his life, but he didn't. He, he chose to let him die. And that distinction was the one you were making uh, between if you, if you pull the lever or you push the fat man, then you are acting um, and the death is at your door. You have caused the death of this person. Um, and if you omit to act, you are not responsible for the death, even if the death would not have happened had you not have done whatever it is you did. Well, what do you think of that distinction? Because notice that distinction allows you to be a deontologist, it allows you to be an absolutist about killing whilst letting people die. Um, and in fact, I mean, it's often occurred to me looking at the assisted dying, assisted suicide and so on, doctors have always helped people to die. They've always delivered too much morphine. They've always walked very slowly to the room, etc., etc. And if the law is changed, perhaps they'll be less able to help people die. Because, of course, actually, once you've got um, hoops through which people have got to jump, 
before it's acceptable to let people die, people are very less and much less likely to do it when they would have done it otherwise. Um, and that's the act-omission doctrine becoming really very uh, important. So what do people think of that? Do, do people think that it is okay to let somebody die where it's not okay to kill them? Yes, I, I mean... I, you do. It, it's something that comes up, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, and I think there are many elderly people who have been tattooed across their chest, you know, do not revive, and that, that is what they want. That's the interesting thing. If you're with somebody that you've talked to beforehand and they've said, look, if I'm in that situation, do not revive me, that is slightly different, isn't it? Well, actually, at that point, if the doctor interferes and, and resuscitates them, he's guilty of assault. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, that's... Uh, so, perhaps we're, we shouldn't take of that situation. We should look at a situation where somebody hasn't made yeah. their... I mean, because you've also got things like... Um, um, who's the boy who was caught in the um, football stadium disaster? Anthony... Um, Tony, what was his surname? Hillsborough. Hillsborough disaster. Yes. Um, Bland, Tony Bland. Yes. Uh, he was left in a, in a vegetative state um, and he was on a life support machine. Um, and um, it, they allowed it to be turned off, didn't they? But he actually died of starvation. Um, he didn't die of uh, he didn't die when the machine was turned off. He died of starvation. So nobody fed him. Um, and again, that's omission rather than act. I had to make the decision for my father when um, knowing he had a living will, saying do not resuscitate. He had a really bad chest infection, got dementia, severe dementia. And when at the nursing home the doctor came and he turned to me and said, "What do you want to do?" Do you want us to move him to the doctor? Yes, yes. To have um, intravenous antibiotics. I knew my father had a living will thing. Don't resuscitate. Uh, yeah, but I couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. I have felt like I, I made him take him to the hospital. It's because you thought you would be killing him otherwise. Yeah. yeah. It's that, that, that decision, to have to make that decision is. Yes. Okay, so, so can you see how the act-omission doctrine would enable you to, to go with deontology and yet still allow people to die, even if you weren't actually killing them? Um, but you might also think that actually, I mean, in, in France they have a good Samaritan law, don't they? If you don't help somebody, um, if you could have saved them and you don't, you're guilty as if you killed them. Um, have you heard about that? There's a similar law if you see um, an accident on the road and don't report it. That you're guilty of, of something there, I gather. Yes, I think that might be just not reporting it. So I, I, in this country, you can't well, be doing anything at all. You can't be guilty of killing somebody if they die when you could have saved them. But in France, they they could. It's non assistance de personnes en danger. There you are. Say it again, it sounds so nice. Non assistance de personnes en danger. Non assistance non to, to people who are in danger. Yes. It used to be enunciated um, amongst doctors, but 
I say used to eight, ten years ago, thou shalt not kill, but needs not strive officiously to keep alive. That's Hilaire Bell Belloc, I yes. think, is it? Yes. Well, easily remembered. So yes. Just, just prayed yeah. it out with well, that's the, the act of mission. There's also another, something called double effect. Has anyone heard of that? I think you were about to get onto that, weren't you? Alan, do you want to tell everyone then? My wife says I can't. Speak, oh, yeah. His <laughs> wife says he can't. <laughs> okay, double effect is like this. Um, when you're thinking about um, pushing the fat man off the bridge and you're thinking about pulling the lever, um, when you're pulling the lever, it could be that the single man on the, um, on, the, on the other track looks around, sees the trolley coming and leaps off. And you would just be so glad, wouldn't you? I mean, his death is actually not part of your plan, is it? His death is just you know, a foreseen consequence of, of saving the five. Whereas with the fat man, actually, he's pretty well got to die, hasn't he, in order for you to achieve saving the five. Um, and so in, there's a difference between intending death and foreseeing death as a result of your action. So in, in one case, you foresee death but don't intend it. You sincerely wish that death didn't happen, but you can see that it's going to, but you still you've got to act. And uh, actually intending somebody's death as a means of saving this other's life. And again, this is another way in which a deontologist can, can um, adopt an absolutist position while saying there's a difference, if I, if I as a doctor give a, a high dose of morphine intending to uh, alleviate pain, whilst foreseeing that the, death is high, the dose is high enough to cause death as well, if my intention is to, to alleviate pain, then I'm not guilty of murder, um, even if death does result. So again, you've, you've got a way of doing the right thing um, in the case of assisted dying and what have you, um, but without um, actually killing, um, which is always and everywhere wrong. Um, so the act-omission distinction and the double effect doctrine, which distinguishes between uh, intending death and foreseeing death, uh, two very important distinctions that, that you can bring in to mitigate um, absolutism. Okay, I think that's all I'm going to say. And so, okay, why is the first case different from the second? We've done that. So, yes, yeah, psychologists and re neuroscientists have recently discovered the trolley problems, which is why it's become trolleyology. I, I don't actually, I'm not very keen of doing the trolley thing. I, I prefer the ones that have you thinking about the ship and the... Um, but it was Philippa Foote who introduced trolley, the trolley problem in 1967. And psychologists in neuroscience have been collecting data about people's answers. So finding out how many people would push the fat man off, how many people would pull the lever. Um, and it, it's quite, 
One of the things that about, about morality that's very important is it doesn't really matter how many people do decide one way or another, um, which is the only data that can be collected, of course, because what, what we need to know is what they should decide. And that's not a matter for scientists, is it? That's a matter for philosophers. Um, and the point of the trolleyology problems is to work out why our intuitions are pulled one way by one experiment, one way by another experiment. Does double effect come into it? Does the act of mission doctrine come into it? Can, can these distinctions explain why we will do this and won't do that and, and so on? So, I think, yes, there we are. There's... Um, Exactly the same thing as last time, further reading, podcasts and websites, and they're all on this thing that I've got. But we've got a quarter of an hour for questions. One, two. Yeah. Can you help me sort out my faulty thinking? I very much believe that the ship's captain should save the thousands of people. not Hundreds, maybe. And in the second example, I very much believe that the doctor should not kill the tramp even though utilitarian grounds he should. And I think it's, and I'm wondering why, and I'm thinking it's something to do with society's expectations of people in authority. We do expect a ship's captain to save his ship. We do expect doctors not to actively kill their patients. Okay. So can you sort me out around that? Well, I don't, I don't know if there's any faulty thinking going on. That sounds very sensible thinking to me. Okay, so what the question was, was, um, sorry, what's your name? Anne was saying that um, she very much thinks that the captain should turn off the oxygen in the engine room and kill the four, but she also very much thinks that the doctor shouldn't kill the four, uh, the tramp to save the four. Um, so w one side she's w very much with utilitarianism, the other side she's very much with deontology. Um, and her explanation for this is that she thinks that whereas the captain is obliged uh, by society's expectations, apart from anything else, to save the ship and the ship's crew. The doctor is expected by society to save people, not to kill. Okay, do people think that that's a reasonable explanation? You do, presumably, because you brought up the ship's captains. Did I represent your view? Yes. You yep. did. Okay, do, do people think that this is a reasonable so if we sort of extrapolate that into the happiness bit, we can say we're happy in general as society, therefore the maximum happiness, knowing that ships, captains will do everything they can to save a ship. We are also happy knowing that doctors will not kill patients. So we are maximising happiness. Okay. I think this is a very good way of thinking. The actual, um, one of the things about utilitarianism is that um, utilitarianism is initially very attractive, isn't it? Because we're all taught rules as children, and your parents taught you that you shouldn't lie and that you shouldn't kill that spider and things like that, <laughs> um, and that you shouldn't steal. I mean, they, they gave you lots of moral absolutes, didn't they? Um, and at some point, you caught your dad lying. Oh, you lied, Dad, you said. And he went, oh, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> And you've all probably been in that position yourself. Um, 
It's at that point we know, don't we, that there's, there's got to be more to it than that. Um, you know, you, you think, okay, it can't be just that there are these moral absolutes that you have to, um, because there's a point where they come into conflict. Um, you know, you can't both be kind or honest. You can't, you can't obey general rules that conflict in a particular situation. So um, at that point, you start thinking that maybe utilitarianism, I mean, what do you do in this situation where the two, two rules conflict? Well, maybe you become a utilitarian. You decide that what we're trying to do is produce the greatest happiness of the greatest number. Um, so that's a way of dealing with the fact that rules seem to run out, don't they? You instead have something that, that actually allows you to, when the Nazis come to the door and say, are there any Jews here? It's your duty at that point to lie. Um, you know, believing you shouldn't lie at that point is a little redundant. Um, so you, you're moving around. You've, firstly, you've got rules. Then you've got this idea that, that producing the greatest happiness of the greatest number is the thing. But then you've got situations like the tramp um, and situations like slavery and um, genocide and so on, where, where actually you want to say, well, actually, there is a rule here. There's a very important rule. And, and what's more, it can't be broken. And at that point, you get something <coughs> called rule utilitarianism. Um, rule utilitarianism says that actually you should um, look after rules until um, such time, not they come in, well, hang on. You look to the greatest happiness of the greatest number in order to decide which rules that you need. Okay, do you see a rule utilitarian can justify <coughs> the fact that we're all brought up with rules? Um, and it's attempt, an attempt to combine the two. Except there's a problem. Because what happens when you reach a point where obeying this rule is not going to produce the greatest happiness, the greatest number? Okay, a rule utilitarian at that point has three possibilities. Um, they can either keep the rule, so we're in a situation C, circumstances C, where um, obeying the rule won't produce the greatest happiness, the greatest number. He can either obey the rule, in which case you say, well, why is he a utilitarian? Surely he's not a utilitarian, he's just a deontologist at this point. Or he can break the rule, in which case you say, well, why is he a, you know, a rule utilitarian? Surely he's just an act utilitarian, isn't he? Um, or he can modify the rule. So he could say, um, well, OK, we shouldn't lie except in C. Um, so no lying except in C. So that, that's the rule. But then what happens when you hit another circumstance in which you should lie? So then it becomes no lying except in C and C1 and C2 and C3 and C4 and C... And again, you think, well, surely he's a, just a utilitarian of the ordinary kind. He's not really a different... Mm -hmm. Except you could see principles for the subordinate variations and pre... And pre 
Well, I mean, all you'd be doing is modifying the rule. And the idea would be it would let you break the rule every time it came into con uh, conflict with greatest happiness to greatest numbers. So it's just straightforward utilitarianism uh, is the thought. So you, you've not really got a third kind of thing that puts together nicely utilitarian and deontology. But then along comes Rawls, and you've met him already, because he was the one of the original position and so on. And the reason he is important is because he wrote something called Two Concepts of Rules. Two Concepts of Rules by Rawls. <laughs> and he goes for exactly the sort of thing you want. He says there are two types of rules. There's um, summary rules and um, oh, what does he call them? Can either of you remember? Summary rules and... Anyway, what they are is there's a type of rule that you can just break, a rule of thumb. Which is a rule based on inductive logic. You've seen that on the whole, lying doesn't produce the greatest happiness, the greatest number, so you formed yourself a little rule, don't lie. But in this particular case, you can see that you know, the Nazis are at the door asking if there are any Jews here. You know, you should lie here. Uh, and so this is a rule of thumb, you break it. Okay, no problem. Um, and then there are other rules, like they're called, um, no, these are summary rules. Ah, what's the name? Summary rules and, I can't remember. Think about chess. Okay, there's the rule of castling in chess, or there's the rule that allows the knight to move, what is it, two forwards and one to the side, uh, or whatever. Um, if you're playing chess with somebody, you can't just decide to break that rule, can you? <laughs> you can't just say, listen, it's going to lead to the greatest happiness, the greatest number, i.e. my winning, <laughs> if I'm just going to send this knight right across the board diagonally as if it were a bishop. I can't do that, can I? Um, so there's a type of rule that can be broken immediately and there's another type of rule that, that is absolute unbreakable. Um, and that sort of thing, if you were um, a legislator in Parliament and you're thinking which laws should we have that produce the greatest happiness of the greatest number, you'd Moral say... Rules. What's Moral that? Moral rules. Uh, no, no, laws. We're talking about laws of the land here rather than moral rules. Against rules. Oh, practice rules. Thank you. Yes. yes, summary rules and practice rules. Thank you very much. Somebody's got his... Uh... So there's summary rules, which you can break at any point, and there are practice rules whereby if you adopt the practice, you agree to abide by that rule. So I haven't got married. This means that I can't commit adultery. There's no rule that, that, well, you see what I mean, though. <laughs> um, there's no rule that bans me from doing whatever I like with anyone. Um, whereas those of you who've got married have taken upon yourself a practice that means that there are things that you shouldn't do. Um, okay, so there's, there's no absolute that isn't relative to a practice, but relative to the practice of marriage, it's absolute that you shouldn't commit adultery. Um, and in the same way, so, so it's a bit more like the chess move um, 
And there are various different practices that we can take on. For example, um, I talked about the legislator before. So there are two different types of rules here, but there are also two different types of role. There's the judge <coughs> and the legislator. Now, the legislator gets to make the rules, doesn't he? Gets to make the laws of the land. And he can look straight to the greatest happiness, the greatest number, to decide which rules produce the greatest happiness, the greatest number. But having made these laws, they're then applied by the judge. Now, the judge can't say, you know, well, OK, I've got David in court. Oops, would you give me my top of my pen back, please? <laughs> I've got David in court accused of having murdered his wife, um, but I rather like him. Um, and I think it'll lead to the greatest happiness, the greatest number, if I just let him off. You know, I can't be doing that, can I? Because as a judge, it's part of my role to look to whatever law is made, even if I think the law is unfair, and to apply it. Do you see what I mean? So whereas the legislator can look straight to the greatest happiness, the greatest number, the judge must look to the rule. So do you see how actually immediately utilitarianism has got hugely complicated? Um, because you've got different types of rule, you've got different types of role, and depending on which rule you're using and which role you're doing, you can or can't break various rules. And it makes utilitarianism much, much stronger than the knee-jerk, very unsophisticated version I gave you initially. And in the same way that the act-omission doctrine and the double-effect doctrine make deontology much more sophisticated than the knee-jerk uh, version I gave you the first time. And you can imagine, I mean, philosophers have been thinking about these things for years and years and years. <laughs> And there are numerous papers and books and goodness knows what, all of which give further sophistications of this to what we're hoping in the end is we, we end up with the right one. Um, so that's what we're doing. So just as physicists are trying different theories, um, different experiments, different theories, so philosophers are doing exactly the same, but constrained by the laws of logic, not the laws of nature. Okay, any other? Uh, just a question. With, um, with deontology, if, if you phrase the rule in the positive, does that make a difference? So, for example, I'm thinking if the rule is you shall not kill, then that does allow you to bring in the issue, as you say, of um, active omission. But if the rule was you must preserve life, then doesn't that take away the get out of whether you're doing omission or commission? because you're still breaking the rule. You're just as guilty of breaking the rule if you don't act. Well, I think you'd end up with the same problem. Am I right there? I mean, for example, if, if the rule is preserve life and this person with dementia, this elderly person with dementia who really um, hasn't said, I don't want to be resuscitated, but on the whole, resuscitating is them is only for more life that's unsatisfactory, um, haven't we got the same dilemma, even if the rule is preserve life rather than don't kill? <coughs> I'm not sure. It's, it's a bit like you know, the difference between don't lie versus always tell the truth. It seems to me to be um, you, 
there's more to cover if, if, if it's put in the positive then uh, it's easier to get out of We'll always tell the truth. So, so when the Nazis come to the door and say, are there any Jews here? If my rule is always tell the truth rather than don't lie, yeah. have I got less of a problem if I'm an absolutist? Well, I think you've only got one option. If you're an absolutist and you're following the always tell the truth, then you must tell the truth. But haven't I, if I've got don't lie as well? Oh, you mean I could say, um, I'll tell you what, I've got to go shopping. Or something. <laughs> no, I mean, I well, that might be the truth as well. You have to acknowledge the presence of the Jews if you're following the rule that you must always tell the truth. You would have no other, your prime directive that would allow you as no, no other option. So are you, are you agreeing that actually whether it's positive or negative, you would still have the same dilemma? Or, or no, do you I, think, I think you have, you have no dilemma if, it's, if, it's, if, it's, if, you, if you're fundamentally following the directive you must always tell the truth, then actually you have no dilemma because you have no choice. Because you've, you've got to you say, yes, the Jews under the bed. You either are or you're not. It's absolute. You're either yeah. a deontologist or you're not. And if you're saying you're a deontologist, then you actually have no choice except to say, yes, there are Jews in this house. I don't see why that's different from you mustn't tell a lie. Speak up. I, I don't see how that's different from you mustn't tell a lie. Well, there is a there is a difference in that. Um, I mean, it, in order to, I mean, some people think that uh, if you just, I, I sometimes ask, ask people, what would happen if you couldn't expect most people most of the time to tell the truth? Okay, I, I think it's very important that we do expect most people most of the time to tell the truth, um, and the reason for this is is because. Well, you tell me the reason for that. You you wouldn't trust. Uh, I mean, trust is absolutely vital. Our whole um, communication <coughs> system depends upon trust, and trust requires that most people, most of the time, tell the truth. Doesn't mean anyone tells the truth all the time, and some people tell the truth none of the time, etc. But most people tell the truth most of the time. Um, and some people try and get around that by saying, well, actually, there are some people who lie all the time, but you can just turn around what they say and determine the truth. Well, you can't, actually, because if you were telling a lie about the colour of my dress, um, one way you could tell a lie is by saying it's not black, uh, in which case I could work out very quickly that it is black, um, whereas you could say it's yellow or it's red, or it's blue, in which case I'd have no chance at all of working out what colour it is. And I wonder if that has got a, an import with what your thought is. Anyway, has anyone got one more question? Because if not, the bar's open. That's killed the question, hasn't it? <laughs>